uh, turning to the catechism. And before we do so, we will look at Romans chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 1. We'll read 3, uh, 1 through 20. This is on page 940 of our uh, Black Pew Bibles. If you have one of those at hand, Romans chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Thus far the reading of God's word. And we will turn now uh, to the back of our Psalter hymnal on page 882. Where our catechism lesson may be found from the Heidelberg Catechism. We are looking at the lesson of Lord's Day 24. Uh, This is sort of following on last week's teaching on how we are justified by faith alone, um, the value and the importance of knowing and understanding and putting our confidence in the good news taught to us by the Apostles' Creed, that summary of the Christian gospel. And now in uh, Lord's Day 24, uh, we continue uh, this um, defense of the centrality of the gospel of justification by faith alone. We'll read responsively, beginning at question 62. Why can't our good works be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of our righteousness? Because the righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. But even our best works in this life are all imperfect and stained with sin. How can our good works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and in the next? 
This reward is not merited. It is a gift of grace. But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? No, it is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. Well, as we turn to our catechism lesson today, we address the catechism addresses directly one of the chief concerns and objections that's raised against the gospel, against the good news that we are justified on what we looked at last week, that we are righteous by true faith in Christ, that it is his righteousness, holiness and satisfaction. Uh, His alien righteousness, something that is outside of us, that is yet credited to our account when we stand before the mercy seat, when we stand before the throne of God. It is the righteousness of Christ that justifies us. And one objection that always comes up, we see it in in Paul's text in chapter 3 of his epistle to the Romans, is, well, what about good works? If you're not saved by your holiness, why be holy? And uh, that is a question that our catechism takes quite seriously. Um, it, it looks at it from a couple of different angles. And so we are going to do so as well today. Um, I want to follow roughly the outline of these three questions. First of all, the first point is that our good works are imperfect. Second, our good works don't merit rewards, heavenly rewards or any rewards. Um, the scriptures speak about rewards. How do we understand that language? And third, our good works, nevertheless, I could add a nevertheless in my outline here, nevertheless are a necessary part, a necessary fruit of gratitude of God's saving work in us. And uh, it's just important before we start to note that that this section of the catechism really underlines and emphasizes how important the doctrine of justification is. We mentioned last week that the Reformation called it the the doctrine of a standing and falling church, where the gospel is not present, uh, the Christian church is not present. This is what is essential to what our uh, Belgian Confession of Faith talks about as the pure preaching of the gospel. It's this message. And so the fact that there are six questions here, that a lot of time is spent getting this right, not only in the affirmative, but also in the negative. And this follows sort of a a medieval or a scholastic way of teaching, right? We affirm this truth, and therefore we must deny this truth. That's a a logical and a rational way of thinking, one that's not very common in the world today. We often want to say, well, I affirm this and I affirm that too. We accept all comers, right? But the, the problem here... And what our catechism is concerned with pointing out is that you, if you want to affirm the necess- necessity of good works in the Christian life, you run the risk, if you don't articulate it carefully, that necessity, of undermining the comfort of the gospel. So that's what's at stake here. And the, the starting point, really, is that our good works are imperfect. This is our first point. Why can't our good works be our righteousness, or even at least just a part of our righteousness, the the catechism asks. Because perfection is required. And the very best things we do, the, the high points of our obedience, are imperfect. In the words of the catechism, because the righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. But even our best works in this life are all imperfect and stained with sin. So there's a key distinction here between uh, God's judgment and man's judgment. 
We speak generally, colloquially, in many ways that, uh, you know, so-and-so did a good work. I did a good deed. I remember I was in college once and uh, uh, I was at a stoplight and the car in front of me stalled out. You know, the engine died or whatever. And, and I jumped out of my car. I pulled over and I, I helped push the car to the side of the road. And I really thought I was just the best citizen in the world, you know. I, I did a good deed, you know. And I did, you know. It was some, some woman who needed help and I was happy to help, right? That's a good deed. We don't deny that. We don't deny the value of those works in civil society. But to understand how great our sin and misery are, you really have to understand that on the final day, we must stand before God's holiness. Again, that law that can be summarized and is summarized in Scripture in both the Old Testament and the New. To love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's this comprehensive, perfect, wholehearted, interior, exterior obedience. And the catechism is very precise. Remember, the outline of the catechism is three things that we have to know to understand this gospel, the comfort of Christian gospel, how great our sin and misery are is the first thing. It's not just that we're sinners. Everyone, almost everyone will say, well, nobody's perfect. That's how we often think about sin. Well, you know, total depravity, no one's perfect. That's not the point. The point is how great our sin and misery are. And it pushes us towards this conclusion. That part one truth that's taught there pushes us towards this conclusion in the middle of part two. God's way of deliverance can only be by providing a substitute, a perfect substitute. And since we're all sinners and since we've all sinfully warped, have a warped grasp of God's holiness, we need to be taught his holiness through the law again and again and again. It's an iterative process through the Christian life. At the end of the law, in the gratitude section of our catechism, they'll say, why should this law be taught so strongly? Not just taught, yeah, God's holy, but in detail, with precision. Why? So that we may grow more and more. We may learn more and more how great our sin and misery is. How much we need Jesus. That our faith could grow, right? That we could grow in our knowledge of our own sinfulness. We must come to know our sin more and more all our life long. And this isn't a a Calvinist or, you know, there are other medieval Christian traditions, right, that say, well, we have to, you know, get a little leather whip and flagellate ourselves to know the pain and suffering that we truly deserve. That's not the point. The reformed, the biblical point of knowing our sin is not to beat ourselves up over it. Calvinists are not dour. We are all the more joyful because we know how God has delivered us from our own wickedness. We know what we deserve and we know what we're getting, you know. That old answer to the question, you know, how are you doing today? Better than I deserve. It's true. For the Christian, it's always true. Kevin DeYoung in his helpful commentary on the catechism says, we are worse than we think. Always, always. (laughs) And he lists a number of reasons. They're really helpful. God is bigger than we think. He's more excellent, more beautiful than we can imagine. We are ungrateful. God's many, many gifts already that we've enjoyed this morning. We ignore. Not only do we do bad things, but we do not make good things the ultimate priority. If we were honest, God is not our first priority on most days. Often as we're preaching through the Psalms, I think, how wonderful it would be to just have the habit or practice of singing two or three of these Psalms a day at home with my family or by myself when I woke up in the morning, you know, preaching God's word to myself, meditating on them. I don't do that. (laughs) 
My personal devotions are not that consistent. I wish they were. We do pray, we do read, right? But which one of us is as faithful in these things as we ought to be? If you break one law, you are a lawbreaker, James says in chapter 2 of his epistle, writing, For whoever keeps the whole law, yet fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. There are two buckets, law keeper, law breaker. And we're all in the law breaker bucket, according to God's word. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, Jeremiah says. We all struggle with pride. Our sins include not only what we've done wrong, but the good we've left undone. Again, James writes, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The natural man is unaware of his hatred toward God. At least regenerate believers know this and you're growing in this knowledge, right? The natural man is totally unaware. He's created a false god if he has any god at all. Uh, And he uh, disbelieves in that God whom he hates and suppresses the knowledge of. And Jesus, Jesus himself knows that we are condemned. He teaches this, right? In John 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. It's not about obedience. It's about faith in the Savior sent from God. For God so loved the world, two verses earlier, that he sent his only begotten son. We we talk about that verse all the time, God's love. (laughs) But the condemnation that goes hand in hand with it is not often read. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things. Again, Paul in Galatians agreeing with James. Our good works in this life, our best works, are always imperfect. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. If we are proud of some of the progress we've made in our sanctification, maybe, uh, you know, our daily devotionals are pretty good. If you take pride in that, there you go, another sin. (laughs) In Romans chapter 3, we read it this morning. I won't reread the whole thing, right? has this this conclusion and it's reading from the Old Testament scriptures and what Paul is saying very clearly is what the Old Testament said about sin is still true in the New Testament. The coming of Christ doesn't undo the truth of God's law and holiness. It, It upholds it. And that conclusion, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since the law, through the law, comes the knowledge of sin. So important. We don't abandon the law because it brings us bad news. We cherish it. It also teaches us the way to go. The end there of Psalm 143. But that law doesn't make us holy. It doesn't make us holy. It can't. Not because it is powerless, but because we are powerless. This is the lesson Paul will get to later in Romans in chapter 7. So the first point here of, of our outline is, is really that our good works are imperfect. Our good works can't be a part of our salvation, our justification, because they can't stand before God's perfect standard. What do we do then? Second point, what do we do then with the language of reward? Uh, The scriptures, 2 Timothy 4, talks about Paul. Uh, Paul writes in the first person, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, 
That's good news. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, so it's talking about God in his, in his judging capacity, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also, so it's not just for apostles or saints or super apostles, to all who have loved his appearing. So if you can say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, if you put your trust and confidence in him and don't fear the judgment because your confidence is in Christ, we will all have waiting for us a crown of righteousness. Well, how do we keep this in, uh, in common? How do we hold this truth in common with the fact that we don't deserve that crown, that our works are imperfect? Again, all filthy rags. The scriptures teach us Also, in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 2, for instance, that God provides good works for us to do. In other words, the good works we do, the good works that he rewards, are themselves given to us, prepared for us, and gifted to us. We are given through his Holy Spirit the power and the ability to walk in these paths. However, imperfectly, Ephesians 2, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. Again, you couldn't be more clear so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters, our obedience is imperfect, but God wants us to be obedient. He loves his law. He loves his holiness. He loves his son and his son, Jesus Christ. His image is being remade in us. We're being remade after that image. That is an essential part of God's saving work in us. Christian children, your parents love you. And they want you to grow in holiness as well. And this is a beautiful truth. That when you might feel like, mom and dad want me to do this, I don't want to do that. God will over time. If you pray, if you trust in him, he will give you more and more ability to love and rejoice in that holiness and that obedience, which you were called to show not only towards your parents, but towards your heavenly father. We are saved not as a result of these works, but saved for these good works. So there is not a contradiction here. The two ideas are both packed together densely by the apostle Paul. God crowns his good works in us. The distinction we must make here to to understand what's going on, not by merit, not strictly because we deserve them, but by his grace. Even these good works that we do need to be, as it were, covered, purified, washed, cleansed by the blood of Christ before they are presented to God and made worthy. It is by faith, works done in faith, that are admitted. Hebrews chapter 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's another word for faith, right? So what, what the apostle here is saying is when we do good works, we don't present them to God saying like, I nailed it. I finally got it. You know, we rejoice That God is working in and through us. We rejoice that his spirit is helping us begin to stumble along the path of holiness. And we trust that even faulty, imperfect works will be received by a good, loving God. Um, It's an imperfect analogy. But sometimes uh, parents know when a child is, is learning to do something, say polish some silver. And they might do a kind of rough 
job and maybe there's still some tarnish on the, the silverware. You know, parents can often say, great job, you know, here, here's the five bucks or ten cents or whatever they get for polishing silver these days. Great job. And then the kid walks away and the parent finishes up the job, right? We're teaching them that that desire, the impulse is good and is to be rewarded. God rewards these gifts. And Ursinus, the author of our catechism, this is getting a little bit in the weeds, but I find that this is a difficult concept to wrap our heads around, and it's an objection. Well, the Bible says that God rewards our good works, so our good works are necessary for salvation, for for our justification. And this is a key distinction, and so this is kind of a finer point, but I include it here. That is meritorious, our author of our catechism says. That is worthy of a reward to which a reward is attached by obligation. In other words, if the reward must be given, it earned it, it deserved it, right? He says, but the reward of good works is according to grace. There are two things to be considered in a reward. The obligation and the recompense, what's paid, what's paid out. But here, before God, there is no obligation. And hence, the reward which follows our good works is a reward which follows of grace. God doesn't have to reward our good works. He does so because it's part of his plan of salvation. And Ursinus continues, God bestows rewards upon our good works that he may thereby testify that they are pleasing to him. That he may teach us that eternal life is promised only to those who strive and agonize and that he will just as certainly grant us this reward as if we had merited it. So he treats us like his son who was perfect in his obedience. Because when those good works are done by faith in Christ, not out of pride or arrogance, but out of faith, out of love, out of gratitude, which we'll see emphasized later in our catechism, they are pleasing to him. And the final question here, well, if we don't save ourselves, if we don't justify ourselves by our good works, then doesn't this make people wicked? No, it is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. Draw your attention here to the language of grafting and fruits. Uh, The objection, perhaps expressed uh, by Paul, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So if God's grace is so amazing grace, he forgives all my sins. Well, let's sin more and get more grace, right? Paul is not saying this because he thinks it's a good idea, but because this objection is already thrown at him. And his response is, by no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. This is the language of ingrafting. We are buried with Christ through our baptism. We are united to him. John chapter 15, Jesus himself speaks of salvation in this way when he speaks of the branch and the vine. He's the branch, the life-giving branch, and we are vines grafted into him. True faith is not just knowing something. It's just not acknowledging a truth. The Bible says that the demons have that kind of knowledge and they are afraid of God. True faith is, is trust in God. And that trust unites us and grafts us in. And when our catechism defines faith, it says that I have been forgiven, that I am eternally holy, that I am saved by grace alone on account of Christ. 
Not only to others, but to me, the forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. New life flows from the resurrection. When Jesus talks about the vine and the branches, he said, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. It is being united to Christ that brings about fruit bearing in your life. Apart from me, you can do nothing. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Bearing fruit doesn't make you a disciple. Bearing fruit evidences that you are a disciple. Elsewhere in Luke, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. Think just for a moment how often the New Testament uses the metaphor, agricultural metaphor, right? The parable of the sower bearing fruit, uh, fruit bearing the fruits of the spirit, agricultural metaphor, not just because everyone was familiar with farming, (laughs) It teaches us an important point about how God blesses and crowns his saving work in us with holiness. We receive the spirit by being engrafted into Christ. And once that spirit dwells in us, he begins to transform. And in John 15, Jesus says, When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been from, with me from the beginning. So the Spirit bears witness in us and brings about our witness-bearing activity and fruit-bearing. These are fruits of gratitude. So the key point here is that no one is saying that good works don't matter. No one in this argument says we can be lazy and wicked. No one says God's law no longer applies to our lives. That is the position, and it it has happened in the history of of the Christian church, of antinomianism, against God's law-ism. We are not against God's law because we uphold his gospel. Rather, the gospel makes us free to look at that law, not with fear and terror, but with joy. Knowing that through his spirit, God will work out that law in our lives as we're made more and more after the image of his son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Creator God, we know you are a God of vengeance. We know you are a God of holiness. We know that we have read and heard and beheld your glory, but we cannot fathom it. We yet cannot fathom it. And we ask that you would so uplift our hearts and set our minds on the things of heaven that we might humble ourselves before you. And that in our humility and flight to Christ, you might pour your spirit into us. We thank you that we are justified, that we are made holy before you, not by our obedience, but by faith alone, and that this faith gives us confidence to do works of gratitude, to honor your holy name as evidence of your saving work in us. Through Jesus' holy and righteous name, we pray these things. Amen.